Ian, Marcus, David, thank you all. God bless you. Man, thank you. Wow, 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 wow. Hey, I love you guys, every one of you. So good to be here. It's a long way from Nashville, and, uh, you know, just to get to be back at Hume. I'm among friends. I'm among family. I'm among great memories. I've had my whole family out here before. My wife's been out here many times. I've had so many wonderful experiences. I think this is around Lesson 100 tonight that I've been able to preach here at Hume. And I love this place. It's special. It's very, very special. So for you to have taken the time to be here, that speaks volumes. Uh, and thank you for that. Also, I take it as a great responsibility when I'm asked to come out here. And I always ask the Lord, you know, what am I supposed to do, God? What, what do the men and the young men need? What, what's different? What's fresh? What have I not done before? And this time... I'm going to basically do this. I want to um, clear the land and make the pad and build a foundation, all right? And then we're going to build the structure of the house, and we're going to build a really cool one, like a log house. And uh, we're going to put a fireplace in it and all that cool stuff. And then we're going to, to dry it in and put the roof on it, probably going to put one of those really cool green tin roofs and the doors, and we're going to paint it, and then we're going to move the furniture in on Sunday morning. Does that sound good? Um, so what I'm saying is this. Uh, what God has put on my heart to do with you um, is, is taken me um, a while to write and research because it's a deep dive. And uh, when you get through, you're not going to be wiping milk off your lips. You're going to be flossing <laughs> meat out of your teeth. I can promise you that after Sunday morning. And when I get done Sunday, I'll, I'll have to leave pretty quick to catch my plane to get back. Um, but I promise you, I'm going to do everything within my power, as I've already started weeks ago doing, giving you something that's going to be beneficial. Now, it's going to be different. I'll just tell you that right now. So stick with me, okay? Every session is important. And as, import, as, as, as important as it is for you to catch fish, let me ask you, please come back tomorrow morning. Is it 9, 10 o'clock? So if you would, maybe just set your alarm about 9.30 and just put your fishing rod down and let's get back together. Let's do some more worship like that uh, with the band. And, um, and then let's, let's continue building the house together. And I can promise you, if you'll do that, uh, it's going to be an investment of time into the Word of God because we're going to see some things in the Word of God as well as extra biblical manuscripts and things that are going to help us start getting some light bulbs popping on about the topic. Now, before I tell you what the topic is, let me just ask four or five of you, if you would, to very quickly just, just come down here and turn and face the audience. I'm going to play about a 30-second game with you. So let me have four to five of you, just very quickly. There's one. Here comes two. It's three. Yeah, it's not an Oreo thing. All right, yeah, just, just line up right there and face the audience. And here's what I'm going to do. Um, I'm going to say a name. And immediately, starting with this young man right here, you're going to, you have one second to say what comes to your mind when I say this name. Just whatever comes to your mind. It's the very first thing, okay? And then you're going to go immediately after he goes. So in one second, he, he says it, you say it, you say it, you say it. Are you ready? Okay, here it is. Then after that, everybody's going to say what comes to your mind, okay? Here's the word. You ready? Three, two, one. Nimrod. Idiot. Dinkumpoo. King. Okay, what'd you say? Idiot. Idiot. What'd you say? Dinkumpoop. Dinkumpoop? Is that the same thing as a nincompoop? That's the first thing that came to mind. Maybe it's a nincompoop with a dingleberry. All right, wait a minute, let's hear it. King. Okay. Fish. Fish, and what'd y'all say? 
I heard Babylon. I heard giant. I heard what else? Hunter. Hunter. Yes. Axemen? What? Oh, that's right. I'm going to talk about that. All right. Let's give these guys a hand. Now, why on earth would I begin the Hume Fisherman series of teaching with um, this word, Nimrod? Well, glad you asked, because we're going to study giants and giant slayers. How about that? Now, it's interesting to me that Nimrod's name has become a amazingly popular cult fiction legend, real life, whatever you want to call it, name. And I'm going to show you this. In Dante's Divine Comedy, written in 1308 to 1321, the name Nimrod is used to portray a giant, along with other giants listed. He stands on the outer circles of hell's circle of treachery. And his only line, line that he says is this, these are words that have no meaning whatsoever. You can't even translate them. wonder why that would be. Ah, because he is the giant who is associated as guilty for the confusion of languages after the Tower of Babel. Okay. In the end of Satan by Victor Hugo in 1854 to 55, it's an unfinished work, Nimrod refers to the sword symbol of war. He's attempting to reach the skies after having destroyed the earth. And, and this unfinished text then is compared to biblical and historical events. As you keep moving through history, we find a guy named Edward Alger. He did a symphony. His symphony is called Enigma Variations. He did it right at the turn of the 20th century. It was 1898-1899. And in his ninth movement... He called that movement Nimrod in reference to a biblical hunter figure. Chuck, you got it right. The nickname Nimrod was used mockingly in 1914 uh, by Robert Tressel in a book called The Ragged, Ragged Trousered Philanthropist. And he's using the sarcastic term Nimrod as reference to a character named Hunter. Hunter is the foreman of a gang of workmen and they, they call him this as a play on both his surname Hunter as well as on his supposed religious beliefs and his great sense of self-importance. In 1931, the word Nimrod was used in modern American English to refer to someone dim-witted or stupid or idiotic. The term Nimrod is sometimes used in English to mean either a tyrant or a skillful hunter. And this usage was popularized by none other than Looney Tunes. Uh-huh. Do you remember Bugs Bunny? Yep. Who sarcastically is said to have referred to the hunter Elmer Fudd with the, the, uh, the name of Nimrod uh, as a mighty hunter or a poor little Nimrod. Well, actually, I researched it. It was not Bugs Bunny. It was, in fact, Daffy Duck, who refers to Elmer Fudd as my little Nimrod in the 1948 short film, what makes Daffy Duck? So let's get our Looney Tunes right, okay? In Marvel X-Men's comics, a character appeared in 1985 called Nimrod, and the name is of an artificial intelligence created by humanity to hunt and exterminate mutants. Now let's look at music, modern music. The American band Pixies have a song called Nimrod's Son on their 1987 mini LP, Come on Pilgrim. 
Then a year, uh, 10 years later, there is an American band called Green Day. Do you remember them? And they released an album with the name Nimrod. Then I found a Saudi Arabian black metal band. That's kind of strange, is it not? Um, and they, were, they called themselves Al Nimrud. In other words, they founded their name on Nimrod in 2008. And they chose this name to, de- to, de- to depict their defiance against religion. Now, they've remained anonymous because they know that the Saudi Arabian government would probably have them killed because of their sacrilegious overtones. Examples can be found in modern video games, if you're a gamer. In the Shadow of the Colossus, it was released in 2005, the powerful being moved the plot forward, and his name was intentionally spelled backwards. His name is Dorman. What is that backwards? It's Nimrod. In the video game Agony, released in 2018, Nimrod is the playable character that's trapped in hell trying to escape. Now, what about modern fantasy literature? I found some there. Kate Daniels is a series by Alona Andrews. It's written from 2007 to the present day. And the protagonist, Kate Daniels, is the last daughter of an immortal who was originally known as Nimrod, the Builder of Towers. So we've got a pretty good reference to this name in pop culture. Even in Monster Hunter International series by Larry Corio, there is revealed the, in 2017 that Nimrod had been the last human champion to defeat Asag, who was the ancient god of chaos. So quite a legend has been built around this name and this character, uh, Nimrod, kind of like Chuck Norris, right? Now, where did this legend begin? That's... That's the question. If this has been around for so long and it's crossed all the pop cultures like that, where in the world did Nimrod come from? Where do we first find him? Glad you asked. It's in the book of Genesis. If you have your Bibles with you this weekend, I do encourage you to bring them because we're going to look at a lot of scriptures. Turn your Bibles to Genesis 10, 8 through 12 because here we find him introduced. He's the son of Cush, which makes him the grandson of Ham, which makes him the great-grandson of Noah. So Nimrod is the great-grandson of Noah. He was the king of Shinar, which is ancient Mesopotamia. And Nimrod is described in this way in Genesis 10. Cush fathered Nimrod, who began to be powerful in the land. He was a powerful hunter in the sight of, and by the way, the, the Hebrew there is best translated in this way, in defiance of. All right, so not in the sight of but in the defiance of the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a powerful hunter, in defiance of the Lord. And his kingdom started with Babylon. It went to Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. And from that land, he went to Assyria. He built Nineveh. He built Rehoboth-ur and Calah and Rezin between Nineveh and the great city of Calah. Now, there are two other verses I found in the Bible that talk about Nimrod. Micah 5, 6, they will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod with a drawn blade. So he will rescue us from Assyria when it invades our land, when it marches against our territory. Then you got 1 Chronicles 1:10. Cush was the father of Nimrod, who became a mighty warrior on earth. Now, extra-biblical tradition identified Nimrod as the ruler who commissioned the construction of the Tower of Babel. And this led to his reputation as a king who was very rebellious against God. You look at the Jewish traditions, you look at the Christian traditions outside of the Bible, even the historian Flavius Josephus. He was born and and lived around 37 AD, right after the crucifixion of Christ, 
and he lived up to the turn of the century around 100 AD, and he believed that Nimrod was the overseer of the building of the Tower of Babel. And this is the view of the Babylonian Talmud, which is the central book of rabbinic Judaism. It's the primary source of religious Jewish law and Jewish theology. It's found also in the Jewish Midrash, which is the exegesis of the Talmud. And several of these early Judaic sources assert that the king Amraphel, who wars with Abraham in Genesis 14, is none other than Nimrod. Listen to what Josephus wrote, the Jewish historian. Now, it was Nimrod who excited them to such an affront and contempt of God. He was the grandson of Ham, the son of Noah, a bold man of great strength of hand. He persuaded them to not ascribe it to God as if it were through his means that they were happy, but to believe that it was because of their own courage which produced that happiness. And he was gradually changing the government into tyranny, seeing no other way of turning men from the fear of God but to bring them in constant dependence on his power. He also said he would be revenged on God if he, God, should have a mind to drown the world again. For, he, for that he would build a tower too high for the waters to reach. That he would avenge himself on God for destroying their forefathers. Now the multitude were very ready to follow the determination of Nimrod and to esteem it as a piece of cowardice to submit to God. So they built a tower neither sparing any pains nor being in any degree neg negligent about the work. And by reason of the multitude of hands employed in it, it grew very high, sooner than anyone could expect. But the thickness of it was so great and it was so strongly built that thereby it, its great height seemed upon the view to be less than it really was. It was built of burnt brick, cemented together with mortar, made of bitumen, that it might not be liable to admit water. And when God saw that they acted so madly, he did not resolve to destroy them utterly since they were not grown wiser by the destruction of the former sinners. But he caused a tumult among them by producing in them diverse languages and causing that through the multitude of those languages they should not be able to understand one another. The place wherein they built the tower is now called Babylon because of the confusion of that language which they readily understood before. For the Hebrews mean by that word Babel confusion. Now that's in Josephus. How cool is that? There are many other extra biblical references to Nimrod throughout history. If you go over to Hungary, you'll find that they believe that Nimrod was the founder of their nation. It goes back to a tale called the Enchanted Stag, and he's described as Nimrod the giant, the descendant of Noah. He's the first person referred to as their forefather of the Hungarians, and he along with the entire nation uh, is also the giant responsible for the building of the Tower of Babel. And it goes on and talks about him, and he gets married and has these two boys and all that kind of stuff. His two twin sons, Hunar and Magor, and they're great hunters, but Nimrod was especially a great hunter, and he was the archetypal, consummate, legendary hunter and archer, and both the Huns and the Magors historically are, are known as great hunters and warriors, all because of Nimrod. Do you know there's even a brief mention of Nimrod in the Book of Mormon? Here's what it says. And the name of the valley was Nimrod, being called after the mighty hunter. <laughs> now, I told you that uh, there were some that believe Nimrod and Abraham went head to head. And in Jewish and Islamic traditions, a confrontation between Nimrod and Abraham is said to have taken place. And some bring them together kind of like two rams butting their heads on a mountain. And these are seen as a symbol of the confrontation between good and evil. In other words, I think it's a symbolism of monotheism versus polytheism. 
Some Jewish traditions say only that the two men met and had a discussion, not really a battle. In some versions of the meeting between Abraham and Nimrod, such as the one in Flavius Josephus, the historian, Nimrod is a man who sets his will against that of God. In other versions, Nimrod declares himself as a god. He's worshipped by his subjects. And a portent in the stars tells Nimrod and his astrologers of the impending birth of Abraham, who would put an end to his idolatry. And so Nimrod orders the killing of all the newborn babies. You're going to see some dots starting to connect here. However, Abraham's mother escapes into the fields and gives birth secretly. And at a young age, Abraham recognizes God and starts worshiping him. He confronts Nimrod, and he tells him face to face, you need to cease this idolatry, whereupon Nimrod orders him burned at the stake. So in some versions, Nimrod sends people all over the earth for four years collecting wood so he can have the biggest bonfire in the history of the world to burn Abraham on. But when he lights it, Abraham comes out of the fire unscathed. Are you hearing other stories from the Bible there? Okay. In some versions, Nimrod then challenges Abraham to battle. And when Nimrod appears at the head of the enormous armies, Abraham reduces an army of gnats, and they destroy Nimrod's army. Some accounts have a gnat going up Nimrod's nose or a mosquito. It enters his brain, and it drives him out of his mind. (laughs) And so there we have divine retribution, which Jewish Um, historians would also assign to the Roman emperor Titus because he destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. In some versions, Nimrod repents and he accepts God and he offers a bunch of sacrifices, but God rejects them as he did with Cain. Other versions have Nimrod giving to Abraham a conciliatory gift. Guess what he gave him? A giant that was his slave and his name was Eliezer. We find his name in the Bible. And some accounts describe Eliezer as Nimrod's own son. And though the Bible doesn't ever say that he's a giant, we know that that at least he was a a subject to Abraham. Still other versions have Nimrod persisting in his rebellion against God or at least resuming it after he had repented. And Abraham's crucial act of leaving Mesopotamia and going across the desert and entering Israel up there at Tel Dan and coming down down south from the north was to actually get away from Nimrod because Nimrod wanted him dead. Now, accounts considered canonical placed the building of the Tower of Babel many generations before Abraham's birth, as in the Bible, also in the book of Jubilees. But there are other extra-biblical books that say it was later after Nimrod failed in his confrontation with Abraham. In still other versions, Nimrod does not give up after the tower fails, but goes on and he's trying to storm heaven in person. He even goes on a chariot driven by birds. He wants to get back at God. I think it's interesting to note this story contains parallel attributes that are given to Abraham from other popular stories in the Bible. The story of Moses' birth, the cruel king killing innocent babies, the midwives ordered to kill them. You've got the careers of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who walked out of the fiery furnace unscathed and didn't even smell like fire. Nimrod is thus given attributes of two archetypal Um, cruel, persecuting kings, Nebuchadnezzar and Pharaoh. Did you realize there's so much going on, even in extra-biblical literature, about this guy named Nimrod? We also have a confrontation found in the Quran between a king not mentioned by name and Ibrahim for Abraham. And some Muslim commentators say that Nimrod was that king. Here's what they said. 
Have you not considered him who had an argument with Abraham about his Lord because God had given him the kingdom? He was prideful. Abraham says, my Lord is he who gives life and causes death. And the king answers, I give life and cause death. So at this point, some commentaries add new narratives, and they have Nimrod bringing forth two men who were sentenced to death. And he orders the execution of one while freeing the other one. Are you hearing more things here? I guess what Pilate did, right? This causes the king to exile him, and he leaves for Canaan and runs away, and he enters Israel at Tel Dan, not far from a place called, you ready for this? Nimrod's Castle. It's right there at Tel Dan. We were there at Tel Dan in September. And you could literally look and see Nimrod's Castle from the very gates of Dan where Abraham entered into the land of Canaan. I pointed it out to my group and said, that's Nimrod's Castle right there. Now whether or not conceived as having ultimately repented, Nimrod remained in Jewish and Islamic tradition as, an, as a, an emblem for evil. He was an evil, evil person. He was an idolater. He was a tyrannical king. And in rabbinical writings of the Jews up to present day, he is almost always referred to as Nimrod the evil. So the story of Abraham's confrontation with Nimrod did not remain within the confines of learned writings and religious treatises. It's even been written in songs in Spain around the middle of the 14th century. This is all over the world. Everybody knows about Nimrod and how evil he is. My interest in the, in, in the castle began to peak in the year 2000 when I went to it for the first time. Nobody goes to it hardly at all. As a matter of fact, uh, in uh, 2019, uh, Hume Lake and our television show, Spiritual Outdoor Adventures, we got together and we led a tour together to Israel. And there may be people in the audience that actually went with us. I I can't really see because of the lights. But we had a great time over there. And and I asked our tour uh, group leader, I said, can we go to Nimrod's castle? And he said, well, it's not on the tour. He said, I haven't taken people there in 13 years. And I said, well, I've got a reason that I want to go there. And we went there. And I uh, I presented some of my uh, study there. And and it's quite an amazing castle, uh, the ruins. And by the time the whole trip was over and we had toured everything in Israel and Jordan, it was the number three favorite spot of our tour group. And people don't even hardly go there. It's fascinating as far as I'm concerned. Nimrod's castle is nestled at the foot of Mount Hermon. It's the largest castle remaining in Israel from the Middle Ages. Now this is where a guy named Saladin enters the story. The Sunni Muslim dynasty was founded by Saladin, who ruled in the late 12th and 13th century A.D. He ruled over Egypt, over Upper Iraq, most of Syria, and Yemen. And Saladin's father, Ayub, was a member of the family of Kurdish soldiers of fortune, who in the 12th century was appointed governor of Damascus. Who was going to Damascus when he encountered uh, uh, the uh, vision in heaven of Jesus and his eyes were blinded? Saul of Tarsus. He was right up there somewhere close to Nimrod's castle, when that happened, most likely. So this Ayub uh, ends up uh, dying. Uh, He waged war against the crusaders of the Catholic Church. He died in 1173, and his son Saladin took over the role to create a united front against the crusaders. 
So let's pull all the Muslims together so we can keep these Catholic crusaders from coming in and taking over. He ends up becoming the, the leader of Egypt. He was the most powerful Muslim uh, in the world, and Egypt was the most powerful Muslim state. He was an amazing leader. He did a lot of things in Jerusalem and in other regions. And then he died in 1193 A.D. And the son of his nephew took over. And he is the one who built this castle. So go ahead and roll that video, if you will. And I want to show you some of our footage from this place that we've taken it. He named it Nimrod's Castle. <laughs> the fact is reinforced in the subscriptions decorating the walls of the fortress bearing the name of the local ruler. And the castle was built very quickly because in, in the year 1227, the army of the German Kaiser Frederick II arrived in the Holy Land and he renewed the crusader threat over the Ayubes. Due to the pressure of time, the Ayubids used an economic method of building and the castle was erected within three years. That's crazy, from 1227 to 1230. And at first, it was just a small fortress, and it was built on the eastern high part of the slope that you're seeing, and then there's the western side that they built on as well. And the location of the building was given a lot of thought. The aim was to set it on one of the most strategic points on the road leading to the Hula Valley that you're looking at right there, and the slopes of the Golan in the direction of Damascus in Syria. It's built on the steepest point in the region. It's overlooking the road passing over the southern relatively moderate slope, which can be observed in the direction of the keep. And all along the road there, ascending from the Hula Valley to Damascus, no other steep ascents are commanded so prominently by cliffs than Nimrod's castle. You'll notice how they later renovated it, they expanded it, they rebuilt it on a higher level of quality, which is expressed in the first-rate building materials, very impressive architecture. And the Ottoman rulers used it as a prison, and in the course of the 16th century, it was completely abandoned, actually became a shelter for shepherds in the region. Then in 1759, there was an earthquake, and it affected it, but Nimrod's castle, in spite of the force of the earthquake, did not suffer very much serious damage. Subsequently, the castle was abandoned until modern times, and in 1920s, the French army used Nimrod's castle while suppressing the Arab and Druze revolts. And in this period, the French placed at the castle a, battle, a, a battery of cannons. And for that purpose, they broke a hole in the western wall that serves as the entrance to the castle to this day. Now, later during the Six-Day War, the castle was used by the Syrians as an artillery observation point due to which the facade of the castle was damaged by the Israeli Defense Forces jets. After that period, the military battles in the region ceased and the castle was rehabilitated. It was renovated. It was studied. Among other things, the inscriptions in Arabic were found that shed light on the building history of the castle. It's a pretty neat place to go. Go ahead, go ahead, you can roll that if you want to. Or I think that might have been, I, I was talking about how high up we were. Now, I want to throw a, 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 a theory in as we close tonight, and uh, we'll have kind of just built a foundation for what you're going to hear tomorrow morning. My theory is this. Nimrod was the first great king on earth that expanded his territory. So he went all, all the way from Babylon all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. He went all the way from there all the way up into northern, uh, the southern part of Syria, the northern part of Iraq. He was an amazing king, a super powerful man, and naturally he's going to need some kind of major military structure and presence in a very key area such as the Hula Valley.
And so I believe that he is the one who first built that castle on that hill. Now, let me put on my redneck hat for a second and add to that. I also believe that Nimrod, being the amazing bow hunter that he was, along with his two sons, would have been familiar with the incredible hunting in the region that we're talking about. Because what we have is the headwaters of the Jordan River. Check this out. These are the headwaters of the Jordan. They flow out of five springs that come together. You actually have trout in this stream. It's a five, it's one of those level five rafting rivers. The thickets are incredibly dense around this. The hills, the valleys, the region is a perfect ambush spot for the bears that lived in the region. And there was also another top predator that lived and hunted in this game-rich environment, the Asiatic lion. These lions roamed these hills in numbers. They had a plethora of food sources of the wild animals. You had the wild ox, the antelope, the ibex. There were leopards that lived there, Mesopotamian fallow deer, ostrich, crocodiles, hippopotamus, jackal, coney hares. There are at least six different Hebrew words used in the Old Testament for lions. And in the ancient times, lions must have been very numerous. I, I, I know that from scriptures just in the Old Testament, it says they lived in the forest, they lived in the caves of the mountains, and they lived in the cane breaks on the banks of the Jordan River. And I've seen these cane breaks even today. They are super, super thick. And sometimes shepherds are, are said to encounter lions in the Old Testament and fight them to the death. Kings would portray their strength by going on a lion hunt and conquering the lion. Bears also frequented the hills and the thickets of the valley system that runs its way downward and south toward the lake known as Lake Gennesareth, or later as the Sea of Galilee or Lake Tiberias. And the level plains area on the north end of the lake is a reeded thicket that's full of wild game. That's why the hunters and the fishermen built a town there. Just before the Jordan empties into the uh, area of the Sea of Galilee, you have this town called Beth Sayada. Do you know what that means? Bet is village. Sayada is of hunters and fishermen. It's the village of hunters and fishermen. That's why Peter and Andrew and James and John grew up there. This little village. They were fishermen. This was probably the best hunting area in pretty much that whole region of the world. And so this amazing hunter that's legendary would have wanted to spend a lot of time there. I believe that he built a massive hunting lodge up there where the best hunting is. That's what great hunters and kings do, right? With trophy rooms. I believe that he did a double whammy. He had a military castle and a hunting lodge that all served as the same thing. And he spent a lot of time there. Now that's my theory. And it makes complete sense when you consider that the Muslim ruler Saladin, who died in 1193 A.D. and had this, uh, this nephew of uh, his, let's see, it was his son, his nephew's son that took over, builds a castle on top of, I think, the ruins of Nimrod's castle. And what does he call the castle? He doesn't call it a Muslim name. He calls it what? Nimrod's castle. 
I talked to the Druze who live in that area. This last trip I was there, the Druze have been there for over a thousand years, right there in that region of the Hula Valley. And they're a mixture of basically Judaism, Islam, Christianity, Hindu, and other influences. And they're very nice people. And I asked them why Nimrod's castle was given that specific name. And they told me that the oral history passed down by their families for over a thousand years said that Nimrod was a great giant, that he was so big that he could literally stand with one foot on his castle that he had built on that hill, and he could have the other foot down at Benaiah's waterfall, which is five and a half miles away, and he could reach down and scoop up fresh water from the waterfall. That's what they believe about Nimrod. It's my theory that Nimrod's castle was built during the Genesis period by a very large man who was a giant, not as big as what the Druze say. Legends do grow in time. But it does take us back to our opening text, back to Genesis 10, 8 through 12. Cush fathered Nimrod, who began to be powerful in the land. He was a powerful hunter in the sight of, in defiance of the Lord. And that's why it said, like Nimrod, a powerful hunter in defiance of the Lord. And his kingdom started, and it tells about where all it went. Then we have Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel story. The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to each other, come, let's make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the sky. Let's make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered throughout the earth. And then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. And the Lord said, if they've begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down there. Let's confuse their language so they will not understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. There's the population of the earth. And they stopped building the city. Therefore, it's called what? Babylon. For there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. So when you go on vacation, not you, Chuck, because you're going to an English-speaking Hawaii but when you go overseas and you go to a, a country where they don't speak your language and you can't understand and you get lost and you get frustrated at ordering from the menu, you can thank Nimrod. Seriously, he's the one that caused it. He was a giant from the race of giants, very, very famous giant. And what we're going to do tomorrow morning is we're going to study what he started, what he was a part of, because they're actually are many references to a race of giants in the Bible. And we're going to take a look at these giants, and we're going to see actually six different groups. We're going to find out where they came from. We're going to find out what happened to them and who were the amazing Israelites that ended up having war with them and eventually annihilating them. Now, like I said, we're just building a foundation tonight. So if you come back tomorrow morning, we're going to start working on the walls. And tomorrow night, we're going to start drying it in. And Sunday morning, we're going to move in the furniture.
All right, I appreciate y'all. If you would like to um, see things to look for, if you were to actually go to Nimrod's castle, uh, there is a handout on the back, uh, back there at my table. On your way out, please take that with you, and uh, you will see all of the things as you're walking around that you can find, kind of like an amateur archaeologist, and you'll know what you're looking at, and there's a picture that my wife took of the castle itself. So I'm going to turn it back over to the other guys. And by the way, this is really more just a history lesson tonight. And if you're thinking, man, that's not all that spiritual, we're moving there. Just stay with me. There's a, there's a method to the madness. We're moving there. As a matter of fact, some things are going to start popping, and you're going to start having light bulbs come on uh, as we learn more about the history of these giants and those that slayed them. All right, Lord, thank you for the opportunity to be with these great men. I thank you, Father, for the opportunity that, that everybody's going to have to relax and fish and just have some fellowship and some fun this weekend. I pray that your spirit will be here strongly. I ask you for protection over this place. Bless the leaders here, Lord. Uh, I pray you'll bless Chuck as he's going on vacation with his family. And uh, give them a wonderful time together and refreshing, Lord. And, uh, and just help Jason as he's leading this weekend and all the people that are cooking and helping out, Lord. Bless them. And uh, just, just open our heart and our minds to worship you with everything that we have and to learn from your word about some pretty crazy stuff about these giants and the giant slayers. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks, Jimmy.